You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part five in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Last time, the Corps successfully traversed the length of the Missouri River, more than 2,300 miles. It was a journey epic in nature. At the headwaters of the Missouri, Lewis and Clark had then successfully met up with the local Native American Indians, the Shoshone, who helped carry the expedition's supplies over the Lemhi Pass, which lies on the modern-day Montana-Idaho border on the Continental Divide, at an elevation of over 7,300 feet. However, Lewis and Clark quickly found that the journey over the Rocky Mountains was not going to be as easy as they had been led to believe. There was no all-water route to the Pacific, and no obvious pass through the mountains. This was a big blow to the expedition, not to mention President Thomas Jefferson, who had envisioned such a route to expand American trade and influence into the area. Through Sacagawea, the Shoshone wife of translator Toussaint Charbonneau, the Corps traded for 29 horses to haul the expedition's supplies through the mountains. And just as important, an elderly Shoshone named Old Toby agreed to guide the Americans via a little-used trail. The Corps departed from a Shoshone village on September 1, heading north. They were west of the Continental Divide, heading into uncharted and disputed lands. And that basically gets us up to speed. For the Corps of Discovery, the coming weeks would be amongst the most dangerous times in their trek west. The expedition was heading into hundreds of miles of desolate, confusing, and dangerous country. There were twisting creeks and ravines, and the party was constantly going up and down mountains and hillsides, through tangled thickets and trying to follow a barely discernible trail. And remember, this was not just the men who had to negotiate the difficult terrain, but the horses as well. I want to stress that going over the mountains was not a go-up-to-the-top-and-go-down-to-the-other-side type of journey. This was hundreds of miles of forests, mountains, hills, and valleys. It was unlike anything the men had experienced or imagined. From the start, the expedition would struggle along the north fork of the Salmon River. Things went slowly. As noted, the hills were steep and the forest and underbrush dense, making it difficult going. And much to the dismay of the Corps, snow and sleet began to fall on September 3rd. Clark would write of that day, quote, We passed over immense hills and some of the worst road that ever horses passed. Our horses frequently fell. End quote. On September 4th, the Corps would make a deep descent into the Bitterroot Valley, where they came upon a group of natives. These were a Salish tribe, commonly called Flathead Indians by the Europeans. Like the Shoshone, they were heading east to hunt the herd animals. 
The Salish were friendly to the Americans, as old Toby was able to communicate through a Shoshone boy who lived with them. Old Toby would speak to Sacagawea, who translated to Toussaint Charbonneau in Hadatsah, who then spoke French to one of the party, who in turn translated to English for the captains. As always, cumbersome, but it worked. Also, one of the advantages the expedition would receive was from the simple presence of Sacagawea. This was a teenager with a child. Many of the tribes going forward would see her, and her child, and take their presence as a sign that the expedition was not hostile, as no war party would bring along a woman and a baby. The chief of the Salish was a man named Three Eagles, and once he determined the Americans were not hostile, he greeted them with a hug, like the Shoshone. Lewis and Clark would present some minor gifts to the natives, including flags and medals, and things went well. The Americans would find the Salish to be likable and honest. They would even share what meager food they had with the party, including berries and roots. Private Joseph Whitehouse would call the Salish, quote, the likeliest and honest savages we have ever yet seen, end quote. In an interesting side story, Lewis speculated that the Flathead Indians were the legendary Welsh Indians. You are probably saying to yourself, Welsh Indians? What the hell? And yes, you did hear that right, Welsh Indians. It is worth a sidetrack to our story, which I'm going to tell you because it's so awesomely absurd and cool. According to folklore, a Welsh prince named Madoc sailed to the west in the 12th century. What became of Madoc and his people was never known, but that didn't stop Europeans from speculating. Thus, over time, many different Native American tribes were suspected to be the descendants of Madoc and his people. What generally happened was someone would come across a tribe and believe the language had some vague resemblance to Welsh. This would, of course, lead to speculation that the tribe was Madoc and his people's descendants. It sounds kind of nuts, but this kind of thing was popular for centuries, and Thomas Jefferson believed that the Welsh Indians might exist, and he had instructed Lewis to be on the lookout for them. Anyhow, sidetrack done, back to Lewis and Clark. The Americans would trade with the Salish, adding 13 horses, 3 colts, and a mule, before pushing north along the Bitterroot River on September 6th, 1805. The next few days were highlighted by the difficult travel conditions, as well as the expedition's lack of food. The Corps had used the last of the salt pork and flour, and the mountains offered precious little to consume. The main source of food was the dried soup that the Corps had brought from the east. For men who could consume 10,000 calories in a day, this was an issue. Several horses would be slaughtered in the coming weeks to stave off malnutrition. On September 9th, the expedition would come to a place they would call Traveler's Rest, which is near present-day Lolo, Montana. Old Toby informed the captains that they would go straight west, up to Lolo Creek, and then over the mountains. It was a task that the entire party dreaded. Thankfully, the Corps hunters brought in four deer and a beaver that day, and even more important, contact was made with three local Indians, likely Nez Perce. The natives told the Americans that their people lived on the other side of the mountains, and that there was a river that could be navigated to the sea. The Indians said that it would take only five or six days to cross the mountains. This was welcome news. Five or six days? That didn't sound too bad. But let us remember... Six days to the natives was going to be a lot longer for the Americans, who were loaded down with gear and didn't know the terrain. Starting on September 11th, the Corps would begin a dangerous trek through the mountains on what today we call the Lolo Trail, the pass through the Bitterroot Mountains. It was a slow and torturous journey. The pass was hard to follow, often being swallowed up by dense thickets and fallen timbers. At times the trail would collapse and the men and horses would fall down hillsides. And then there was the snow and sleet, which was coming down hard at times. The guide, Old Toby, got lost more than once, making the trek longer than anticipated. In fact, wherever the men looked, they saw mountains. The crossing, they knew, was going to take much longer than anticipated. 
On September 16th, the party woke to a heavy snow. It was the worst day yet. They slogged through 13 miles of it and were soaked to the bone. Clark would write, quote, I have never been as wet and as cold in every part as I ever was in my life. End quote. Thus, in addition to the lack of food, cold was now an issue. We should note that the lack of food was not just a human problem. With the arrival of the snow, the horses were now having difficulty finding grass and were beginning to starve. To top it all off, the men were getting sick at an alarming rate. Dysentery was a major problem, as well as malnutrition. Desperate for food, Clark went ahead with several of the men to hunt and blaze the trail. On September 20th, the advance party came off the Lolo Trail and into a prairie filled with signs of native activity. Luckily for Clark, he and his men encountered some Indians, giving them gifts to calm them and urging them to take them to their village. It turns out Clark and his party were only a few miles from a Nez Perce camp. The Americans were the first white men most of the Nez Perce had ever seen. There were actually two villages in the area, which is located near what is Wee Idaho. Using sign language to communicate, the Americans quickly became friendly with Twisted Hair, the 65-year-old Nez Perce chief. Clark and his men would get food for the first time in days. The locals made a bread from camas roots. Unfortunately for the Americans, they ate too much of the bread, and it made them sick, giving them severe diarrhea. In fact, when the rest of the party under Lewis caught up, they would get sick as well, the men unable to contain themselves from eating too much camas, despite Clark's warnings. Gastrointestinal distress would dog the party for more than a week, first from the camas and then from eating the local fish, which was filled with bacteria. This made the Corps extremely vulnerable, and the expedition was lucky that the Nez Perce did not attack them, as the sick Americans would have been overwhelmed. In fact, according to legend, the Nez Perce did consider attacking the strangers, but a woman named Wakuais argued against such an action. It turns out that years before, the woman had been captured by the Blackfeet, taken to Canada, and sold to a white trader before returning to her home. The trader had treated her much better than the Blackfeet, and when the Americans showed up, she told her people that the whites had helped her and urged them to do no harm to the newcomers. If this is true, it was a fortuitous turn of events. As normal, the Americans would hand out medals and other minor items to the Nez Perce, but they would be forced to trade more valuable materials in exchange for food. So, while the Americans recuperated, the Nez Perce chief, Twisted Hair, drew a map of the area, including the Clearwater and Snake Rivers. These rivers, he said, led to another great river, which would take the travelers to the white traders in the west. He also told the captains about the now-famous Great Balls of the Columbia, a trip, Twisted Hair said, that would take five days to make. This was what the Americans wanted to hear. The clear water led to the Snake River, and the Snake led to another great river, presumably the Columbia, which would take them to the Pacific. The captains decided that they would make canoes at this point and sail west. While Lewis recovered from an illness, Clark led the men in constructing canoes for the upcoming journey. Using big ponderosa pines, they would make four large canoes and one smaller one. Because the Americans did not have adequate tools for making the canoes, they resorted to an Indian method, shown to them by twisted hair. Instead of using axes to hack out the trench of the canoe, the logs were put over slow-burning fires and the trenches burnt out. It would take ten days to make five canoes, the last one finished on October 6, 1805. The expedition would depart that afternoon, leaving their horses in care of the Nez Perce, who promised to look after the animals until the Americans returned in the spring. The Corps was eager to be moving as there was little game in the area, and the men were still suffering from gastrointestinal distress. Lewis had been laid up for almost two weeks with dysentery. Accompanying the expedition downriver was Old Toby, the Shoshone guide. However, the man would abandon the Americans a few days later, apparently terrified at the running of the rapids in the canoes. 
he would take two of the expedition's horses and ride back over the Lolo Trail to his people's village. But the departure of old Toby was countered by the addition of the Nez Perce chief, Twisted Hair. Twisted Hair would proceed west along the river, ahead of the canoes, to pave the way for the coming of the Americans. He would meet with the natives of the various villages along the river, explaining the peaceful nature of the strange travelers. This would help out the expedition tremendously in the coming weeks and make the journey much easier. In time, another Nez Perce chief, Tedoharski, would attach himself to the expedition and would also help smooth the way for the Americans. The path of the Corps of Discovery was not an easy one. The Clearwater River was rocky and swift and dangerous. The dugout canoes were not particularly seaworthy, and they would overturn and get stuck on the rocks. This caused supplies to get wet or lost or ruined, and more importantly, on several occasions, it put the lives of the men in danger. You can imagine these small canoes running dangerous rapids some more than a mile in length. It would have been a harrowing experience. On October 10th, the Corps reached the Snake River. Here, the Americans traded with the locals, getting dried fish and dogs, the latter of which the Americans ate. The men of the Corps were grateful to have meat back on the menu. It should be noted that, by now, deer and elk were available, but the captains elected to trade for meat, the dogs, rather than spend time hunting. They needed to keep pushing west and set up a winter camp before the cold got too severe. This section of the journey featured many villages, mostly Nez Perce, but also natives from the Yakima, Wanapam, and Walla Walla tribes. The lifestyles of these Indians was dominated by the river and fishing, in particular salmon. For the most part, the natives were friendly. They wanted the American goods that the Corps possessed, even if there weren't that many good items remaining. As noted, the presence of the Nez Perce chiefs, Twisted Hare and Tedaharski, helped smooth the way as well. But another reason for the friendliness of the natives was the presence of Sacagawea and her son Pompey. As noted earlier, these two helped demonstrate the friendly intentions of the Corps, as no one believed a mother and infant would be in the ranks of the expedition if it were a war party. It also didn't hurt that the expedition included the first white men many of these people had ever seen, and they were an immense curiosity. By the way, as the Corps moved west, Lewis and Clark would be the first white men to enter present-day Idaho, and the first to enter Washington and Oregon by land. Regarding the native peoples, the biggest issue the Corps faced with them was thievery. The men of the Corps complained that the natives would simply take things that they wanted. It infuriated the Americans, but it was tolerated due to the expedition's situation. They could not afford to get in a fight at this point. Also, as the Americans headed toward the Pacific, Lewis and Clark understood that they would have to deal with these people coming back in the spring. It was critical to be on good terms with the natives to ensure their safe journey back. And yet another thing that was not far from the minds of the captains was the need for diplomacy. As with the Sioux and Mandan and other tribes in the plains, the native people along these western rivers were potential trading partners for the young American nation. Lewis and Clark wanted to engage these people to set the stage for a northwest trading empire dominated by the United States. To that end, the captains would meet with the natives on their westward journey, and as much as Lewis and Clark wanted to engage with them in depth, such diplomacy would need to wait until the spring when there was more time. In mid-October, the Corps was feeling good about their progress. They were running low on trade goods, but they were moving steadily westward. On October 15th, Lewis spotted a mountain range in the distance. This would be the Cascades. The next day, the expedition reached the junction of the Snake and Columbia Rivers. The men were astonished at the number of salmon. A week later, the expedition reached a dangerous stretch of the Columbia River. This section was 55 miles long and contained several major barriers. The first of these obstacles was Shililo Falls, or the Great Falls. Here, over a short stretch of roaring, turbulent waters, the Columbia dropped to 38 feet and went through several narrow channels between cliffs as high as 3,000 feet. 
Lewis and Clark decided that they only needed to portage all the boats and supplies over a spot that featured a 20-foot drop. They were able to hire local natives to help with the endeavor. Before heading past the falls, the party traded their smallest dugout canoe for a local one made of pine, making it very light. The captains noted the skill with which the canoe was crafted. Like the local canoes, it was light and sturdy and had animal figures expertly carved into the bow. These were Chinookan canoes, the first the Corps had encountered. Clark would say of them, quote, These canoes are neater made than any I have ever seen. End quote. After managing their way past the falls, the Corps came to a section of the river called the Short Narrows on October 24th. This was a quarter-mile section where the Columbia constricts from 200 yards wide to just 45 yards. Clark said the stretch was, quote, an agitated gut swelling, boiling and whirling in every direction, end quote. Lewis's biographer, Stephen Ambrose, notes that today the short narrows are designated as Class 5 rapids, meaning only experts with state-of-the-art equipment should even attempt to traverse them. The captains ordered all the valuable items to be carried along the banks by the men who could not swim, and the canoes were guided through the rapids by the best boatmen. To the astonishment of the natives, the Americans ran the entire short narrows without a problem. Beyond the short narrows, the Corps came upon another rough stretch of rapids called the Long Narrows. As before, the Corps would have the best boatmen lead the canoes downriver with the rest of the men portaging valuable items along the banks. The Corps would successfully pass through the Long Narrows, a three-mile section of the Columbia. With the narrows behind them, the Corps would get a piece of bad news. The expedition's guides, Twisted Hair and Ted O'Harsky, would need to leave the party. It seems that the Nez Perce and the Chinookan peoples living to the west were hostile to each other, and to stay would have been suicide for the Nez Perce chiefs. Thus, the men elected to return home. That night, the captains would entertain the two chiefs and their companions one last time, with Private Cruzette providing music for the occasion. Thus, when the Corps moved on, it was without their guides, who had been so helpful in getting them this far down the river. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For three days, the Corps would rest at a camp they called Fort Rock, before moving on to the final great obstacle of the Columbia River, the Cascades, or Grand Rapids. This is four continuous miles of chutes and falls that would require two days to descend. The most dangerous spot was a section called the Great Chute, which was reached on November 1st. This half-mile stretch dropped 20 feet in elevation, traversing extreme rapids full of submerged and half-submerged boulders. The Corps would portage their gear and supplies a mile and a half and lead the canoes downstream with ropes and poles. It was a difficult exercise, but on November 2nd, the expedition passed the last major barrier on the Columbia River. On that same day, the Corps would reach the mouth of the Sandy River. This is significant as it was the highest point upriver reached by Europeans. Thus, the maps from the east and from the west had now come together. By now, the Corps was pretty much having daily contact with the native peoples, who were not surprised to see the Americans. They were accustomed to having contact or hearing stories about the white traders who came to the Pacific coast each summer. To the relief of the men, the natives were mostly peaceful. 
The Americans would trade with the natives wapato root to make bread, dogs for meat, and fish. There was not much diplomacy going on at this juncture, as the captains wanted to reach the Pacific Ocean and establish winter quarters. Still, at every stop the natives were curious about York, as none had ever seen a black man, and Private Cruzette's fiddle play delighted many along the route. However, the captains grew increasingly wary of the tribes, detecting in some of them fear and jealousy. On November 4th, the expedition entered the territory of the Skalut, a Chinookan tribe. Someone stole Clark's prize ceremonial tomahawk, and a confrontation almost erupted. The Skalutes were described as, quote, disagreeable, end quote. The truth is that the Skalut were worried that the Americans were going to cut into their business as a key middleman, trading goods from the coast to inland tribes. This area, just before the Cascades, was sort of a big trade hub for the region, and the Skalut people were major players. No matter, the Corps kept things simple going forward, trading only as necessary and avoiding in-depth interactions with the natives. By doing this, they kept the potential for conflict at a minimum. So, with the Cascades behind them, the canoes pushed westward. Then, on November 7th, a shout went up from within the party. Clark would write in his journal, quote, Ocean in view, oh the joy, end quote. Well, not quite. The party was really seeing the Columbia estuary, not the ocean. If you look at a map, you can see that the Columbia opens up as it gets to within 25 or 30 miles of the ocean. The river grows as wide as 9 to 10 miles. Even though they had technically not reached the ocean, many people marked November 7th as the day the Corps reached the Pacific. However, the expedition would need a couple of more weeks to reach the actual mouth of the Columbia. No matter the location, to have reached this point must have been a staggering feeling for the men of the Corps. They had left St. Louis a year and a half earlier, and their destination was before them. They had traveled 3,700 miles, an amazing achievement. Unfortunately for the expedition, the weather was bad that day, and they were not able to celebrate their accomplishment. In fact, the truth is that the Corps of Discovery was in ragged shape. Their clothes were rotting from the dampness, and the men were exhausted. They had been in the field for seven months straight. Historian Stephen Ambrose wrote, quote, The captains and men of the expedition looked more like survivors from a shipwreck praying for rescue than the triumphant members of the Corps of Discovery. End quote. Hoping to find some trading vessels still along the coast, the expedition pushed west. Despite being close to the ocean, the Corps would struggle due to bad weather, including winds and tides and waves. They would make camp at an abandoned Indian village on the northern shore of the Columbia, staying there for days. Clatsop Indians, a Chinookan tribe who lived on the southern shore of the river, came to the American camp. They were accustomed to dealing with white men and traded fish and roots to the Corps, food that they desperately needed. On November 14th, Lewis and seven of the men of the Corps would paddle west and reach the mouth of the Columbia. Lewis would carve his name in a tree, marking the accomplishment. Lewis and his companions would travel several more miles up the coast, hoping to find a trading post or maybe a ship. Remember, one of the hopes of Lewis and Clark was that they would find a trading ship on the coast who would be able to take one or both of the captains back east. Unfortunately for the expedition, there was no trading post and no ship, as the trading season was passed the Corps would be on their own. A few days later, Clark would explore the same area and find Lewis's name on the tree. He would add, quote, by land from the United States in 1804 and 1805, end quote. At this point, we can state the Corps of Discovery had done it. They had reached the Pacific Ocean, a journey of more than 3,700 miles. However, the expedition knew that they would need to find winter quarters. There was no trading post to winter at and no ship to bring them home. They had three options. 1. Build a camp on the north side of the river. 2. Build one on the south side of the river. Or 3. Head back upstream in winter with one of the native tribes. 
The captains dismissed the latter option. They still held out hope that a trading ship would arrive, and they didn't want to miss out on such an opportunity. So, north or south shore. The Clatsop Indians told the captains that there were elk on the south side of the river. Since elk were bigger, that meant more meat than deer, which were primarily found on the north side of the Columbia. Plus, the captains did not trust the tribes on the north side of the river. They saw them as thieves. They had found the Clatsops to be fair and honest. To sound out the party, a vote was taken with the members of the expedition, and they elected overwhelmingly to go to the south side of the river. It is interesting to note that the captains let York, Clark's slave, and Sacagawea, a Native American woman, vote. On November 26th, the expedition crossed the Columbia River and made for the south shore. Within a few days, Lewis would find a spot to build a fort several miles from the mouth of the Columbia and three more miles up one of the tributaries that flowed into the Columbia. That river today is appropriately called the Lewis and Clark River. The location featured a spring, plenty of trees to build a fort, and close proximity to the ocean. The latter was desired as the Corps needed salt and they would need to make it along the coast. Best of all, there was game. They found it in abundance. Early on, George Druyer and another of the men shot six elk and five deer in a single day. On December 7th, the rest of the Corps would reach the spot of their winter quarters, which would ultimately be called Fort Clatsop. The next couple of weeks, the Corps set out to build their winter home and prepare for the coming winter. Clark set out to find the best place to set up a salt-making camp, while another group was dispatched to go hunting. The rest of the men began felling great pine trees, probably Grand Fur, to build the fort. Building the fort was slow as bad weather and illness dogged the party. There was also trade to be conducted, and the local Clatsops would come to the fort bringing food as well as furs. The expedition bought skins of otters, lynx, and even a huge panther. Also, there was sex to be traded, which the men of the Corps took advantage of. Fort Clatsop would be finished before the end of the year. It was 50 square feet, and it had two long structures joined by the walls. There was a main gate and a smaller one in the rear. The parade ground was 50 by 20 feet. One of the structures had three rooms and served as the enlisted men's quarters. The other structure had four rooms, one for the captains, one for Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and their son. Another was used as a smokehouse, and the final room was an orderly room, which essentially means a room to conduct the business of the expedition. With that, the Corps of Discovery settled in for the winter. Now, if the cold dominated the previous winter in Fort Mandan, the rain was going to be the predominant feature of the winter spent at Fort Clatsop. The winter brought damp and wet and never-ending rains. The journals of the Corps from that winter are always mentioning the rain. It was omnipresent. This meant several things, including illness, which would be commonplace. The men of the Corps were not accustomed to the wet, and they constantly fought colds and fevers. The list of maladies included tumors, dysenteries, boils, coughs, and fleas. Also, with the men engaging in relations with the native women, venereal disease was back with a vengeance. Another critical difference between the winter quarters at Fort Mandan and Fort Clatsop was the new fort was not next to a native village. Due to the proximity of the Mandan people, the Corps had integrated into their society. The two people celebrated and lived together on a daily basis. But that would not be the case at Fort Clatsop. The Indians had to travel a substantial distance to the fort, and thus the interactions between the Americans and the natives was mostly business in nature. The Indians came to the American fort strictly to trade. And at the end of the day, they were made to leave. The Americans simply did not trust the native peoples, in particular the tribes that came from across the river in the north. Despite this lack of trust, the local Clatsop Indians, under a chief by the name of Kobowe, were a steady and needed trading partner with the Americans. However, the Clatsops would never become the buddies of the Americans. 
They were not fully trusted and made to leave the fort each night, just like all the other Indians who came to trade or visit. It would lead to some tense situations, but no outright conflict. Another issue in the winter of 1805-06 was food. Meat didn't preserve well in the damp, and while food was initially plentiful, game was quickly depleted near the fort, and the hunting parties had to go out further and further, sometimes for days at a time, to find deer or elk or the occasional beaver. The Americans would rely on trade with the local natives to supplement their diets. Wapato, fish, berry cakes, and roots were all traded by the Indians for things like beads and ribbon. As we've noted, the expedition supplies were dwindling by the day. It also didn't help that the local tribes were seasoned traders, accustomed to dealing with the ships that came to the area each summer. They drove hard bargains. One big asset to the Americans was, like the previous winter, a forge was set up. This allowed them to fix metal goods for the natives, or make items such as axes and fish hooks, which they could then trade. Despite all of the hunting and trading, in late January, it was reported that the expedition had only three days of food remaining. The Corps would get a gift from nature when the Clatsop sheep, Kobowe, alerted the Americans to a beached whale south of the salt camp. It would provide over 300 pounds of blubber and several gallons of rendered oil. Also, as the winter progressed, more fish began to appear in the waters. Ulicon, or candlefish, a small ocean fish, began to run up rivers in great numbers. The Clatsops caught them and sold them to the Americans. All of this would help the Americans get through the winter without starving. And so the winter at Fort Clatsop slowly passed, the men fighting boredom and drudgery. One chore that they all had was to make moccasins, as each man would need to take ten pair with him for the journey east in the spring. All in all, it was a hard and dull life, and in many ways Fort Clatsop was more of a prison than a fortification. However, through all of this, the one thing that was maintained was the discipline of the corps. The men, as always, performed well. They were always on guard, and there were no reports of fights or disputes. Again, it is a testament to the character of the men, as well as their leaders, Lewis and Clark. Speaking of the captains, Meriwether Lewis spent much of the time recording the world around him. He described and sketched the plants and animals, as well as the Indians. Lewis wrote extensively about the Clatsop and other Chinookan tribes. These people had already suffered smallpox epidemics in the previous decades, but they were still, at this time, thriving in the area. Regarding the local tribes, Lewis found them inoffensive, despite their habit of stealing, which was a big issue for him. He noted that they were inquisitive, and that they had the sharpest of memories. And much to the chagrin of the Americans, they were ruthlessly good traders. As always, when he had the time, Lewis described their clothing, appearance, temperament, homes, food, and their lifestyle, which revolved around fishing. The captain loved their boats, finding them some of the finest he had ever seen. The canoes were large, up to 50 feet long, painted, and elaborately carved. He also took note of their hats, which were made of cedar and bear grass with a chin strap. Captain Clark liked the hats so much that he had a pair made for him by the Clatsops. Lewis's records of the region's Chinookan tribes would be important, as malaria would devastate the area in the 1820s, wiping out much of the population. Thus, Lewis's work gives us an actual record of these cultures before they were decimated by illness and overrun by Western society. As for William Clark, the Corps' other captains spent much of the winter working on a detailed map of the lands they had traveled. To be honest, if you look at Clark's map work, it is phenomenal. It is detailed and accurate, and it would be a treasure to bring back to President Jefferson. So that sort of gets us up to the departure east. I do want to mention that Lewis and Clark, at this point, were pretty much done exploring in the west. As we noted, in the fall, the expedition had gone maybe 9 or 10 miles north up the Pacific coast from the mouth of the Columbia River. 
but they had never ventured there again. As for exploring to the south, at various times, members of the expedition had crossed over land from Fort Clatsop and traveled about 10 miles south along the coast to the salt camp that Clark had established, and then another 10 miles to the site of the beached whale. But otherwise, the winter was about surviving and then preparing for the departure that spring. There was no other attempt to explore the coast further south. Lewis and Clark selected March 20th as their departure date. They debated leaving two men in the area to try to meet with the traders who would eventually come to the river in the spring and summer, but decided against it. One major issue facing the expedition was their transportation. The canoes they had were in poor condition. Never the most seaworthy of vessels, they had been beaten and battered on the journey down the Columbia. Thus, the captain sought to obtain a pair of new canoes from the local Indians. Unfortunately, by March of 1806, the Corps had traded away 95% of their goods. Lewis would buy one new canoe by trading his prized dress uniform, but the only other thing that the local natives wanted for one of their precious canoes were rifles, which the captains were not going to give up. Unable to trade for another canoe, the Americans would steal one from the Clatsop people. It was a sad testimony to how ragged and desperate the expedition had become. It was also one of the few times the Corps resorted to outright thievery. The Americans no doubt justified it in their minds, but it is sad to see the men of the Corps reduced to such actions, especially since the Clatsop Indians had been so helpful to them that winter. Before departing on their journey east, Lewis and Clark would gift Fort Clatsop, and all of the furniture in it that they had left behind, to Kobaway, the Clatsop chief. They would also give Kobaway a document proclaiming him a friend of the United States. The document would include the names of all the members of the Corps of Discovery. As a side note, Kobaway would carefully preserve that document, and eight years later, in 1814, present it to a trade representative of the Canadian-based Northwest Company. The trader would read the document, then toss it into a fire, giving Kobaway a new one from the British. I love that story because it demonstrates the value, or lack of value, of all of these documents and medals and flags that were passed out by the British and Americans over the years. Each great power simply stepped on the other whenever possible, the native people being the loser in this rivalry. End of side note. So, as spring approached, the Corps of Discovery prepared to depart Fort Clatsop. Bad weather would delay the departure for several days, but on March 23rd, the men loaded their canoes and set out in early afternoon. The journey home had begun. With that, we will end today's episode, which is kind of a biggie. The Corps of Discovery had reached the Pacific coast. That had been their goal. It was an epic journey. It had taken a year and a half and miraculously, only one man had died during the entire journey, a remarkable feat. Now the men of the Corps had to turn around and do it all over again in order to get home. So that is today's episode, part five in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Join us next time as the Corps heads back up the Columbia and over the Rocky Mountains for our second time. Remember, if you ever want to see a map showing the route of Lewis and Clark, you can always find one on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt.
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.